Welcome to the In Search For More podcast, where guests join me in my search for more, more from myself and more from life. I'm your host, Ellie Nash. I sit down, sometimes with one person, and often with a panel to talk about various topics I'm interested in learning more about. Welcome back to the In Search For More podcast. This is episode two of a two-part series, Collateral Damage the damage that the addict causes to those closest to them in their life. Last episode, we heard from Stephanie Pollack, Miriam C., and Rabbi Simon Jacobson, Simon Jacobson. And in this episode, we will hear from the same group. I will go into a little bit more detail on the subject. I was especially impressed by Rabbi Simon's ability to navigate this conversation. You'll see early on in the conversation, he will connect it not only to the individuals, but also the collective suffering of the Jewish people and how Jews historically have transformed their suffering into something positive and meaningful. And Rabbi Simmons' inimitable style of being both compassionate, honest, but also forward-looking, upward-looking, and deriving meaning, information, and lessons from all of life's experiences. This conversation was certainly one of my favorites. I look forward to seeing you on the other side. I want to make one more comment before I want to love to hear from the others. I don't want to. Was I totally agree with you, Stephanie, about the action? The Jewish people, as a whole and individually, they never really asked, "Why did God do this to me? Why am I suffering? Why do good people suffer?" Why did I get stuck in this situation? They always asked, what am I going to do about it? It was always like this. My, the, the dignity remained intact. You cannot destroy me. It's like the Jew before he was shot by the cruel Nazi. And he asked to say his final prayers. And the Nazi said, what are you saying? He says, I'm thanking God. He says, you're thanking God, you miserable Jew. Look, what you're, look at your situation. You're at my mercy. Where's your God? He said, I'm thanking God that he did not create me like you. In other words, you can kill me, but you're not going to destroy my soul, my spirit, my dignity. And at the same time, what the Jews did after the Holocaust, and they always did this, they built. They built their lives. They forged ahead. They did not get stuck in philosophical quandaries and psychological dilemmas of why and analysis. They forged ahead. But it was not just forged ahead in denial. They forged ahead knowing, I don't understand the things that have happened, but I know God led me to this place. And I can rebuild and I can reclaim and I can be greater than ever. And no one's going to take my spirit, my neshama, my soul that is pure. If you're, you're able to hold on to those principles and act on them and be around people, around people that are that way, that is a, the key to all success. I do want to um, add one thing is that in some cases, the addict causing the collateral damage is not a spouse. It could be a child also. And uh, I would imagine that the same principles that the same principles apply. Right? Yeah, much more kids. difficult when it's your child. Much more difficult uh-huh. because you know you can divorce a spouse, you can't divorce a child. I want to actually just on that topic and the same thing. You know how I mentioned in my story that we went to Alaska and Vancouver, and you know we were supposed to go to Key West. Divorce doesn't change unless you change. Like you can take that same scenario and go into the same relationships and go into that cycle of insanity. There's still action that would need to be taken 
Otherwise, you just a, a person can get stuck in that same cycle. So unless good point, it's a good point. You know, a person yes. looks at themselves honestly. You know, all that that's been there, and all that. Um, you know, again, you could be victimized, but you don't have to be a victim of your circumstances. You could still grow. Otherwise, that 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 baggage. But Stephanie, you know, is it possible? Stephanie, is there ever a scenario where divorce is the way to redemption? I'm sure. Honestly, there was there was talk between me and Mati on that. It was it was it was there was a, a, a set of of boundaries, you know, of like if you were to relapse again, what were to happen? It, you know, we had. Oh, this is a point that I wanted to bring up also. Uh, you know how it's it was a journey for me to you know recognize what it was that I needed to do along the way. And again, there was that third person. There was there was a person who was our middleman who we both trusted and we spoke to a lot, uh, you know, with every, uh, you know, along the way. Um, we had, um, we happened to have a, a rub that Matthew respected, which was a hard thing for him. But the part that he needed to see was that I was following up with myself. So it got to a point where I was in Al-Anon and I was working my steps with the sponsor and I was doing certain things. And I remember my sponsor told me that my head and my heart and my feet all need to be aligned. Is that if I'm going to put my foot down, I have to keep it down. I can't be, oh, but he's showing some signs of something. Okay, I don't have to wait a whole year. I don't have to do this. I don't do that. I finally learned how to put my foot down and keep it there. Detach with love. It wasn't me being like, you know, this officer and looking for all the bad. I stopped doing that. It was a waste of my time and energy. And that's what it was. The first time when I moved into my parents' house that time, he was thrown a curveball because he thought he had full, like, you know, he still, the addiction still had power in our lives up until that point. You know, I would ask him to leave. If you can come out clean in a drug test, then you can come home. But there was like that same pattern. And we repeated that pattern over and over again. Until I said, you can't come home until you go into rehab. And he said, no. And I said, fine, I will leave. And I picked up our son and I moved into my parents' house. And that's when things got real. Because he saw that I was no more games. And and then we, we figured out what worked for us, you know, with that middle person of what I needed and what commitments and, you know, the guidelines that worked for us with the boundaries. And that led us to a stronger understanding of where we were in our own lives where we needed to be in our marriage, and whether or not this marriage was going to continue or not. All those things were going to help us. It wasn't a black and white. There's a black and white answer all the time. These things take time. It could take a couple of months. It could take a, it can take a little bit longer. But for us, that's, that's what worked for me in our situation. What this is bringing up for me is something my sponsor often tells me, that in, in recovery, life becomes unpredictable. And I have to think about that. A little bit like, what do you mean it's unpredictable? And in some ways, it's predictable. I'm sober. What he means by that, as far as I understand, is that when when we're trying to control, we're going for a certain outcome. So we're saying that I definitely need to be in this relationship. That has to happen no matter what. And then the same thing happens over and over again. Whereas in recovery, we enter into situations where we say it depends. And I'll step into something. And depending on the way it goes is whether or not I will continue versus trying to control. When we control, we're always stuck on a specific outcome. It must go a certain way. This relationship must work. Where we go into a space, and I can tell you that my girlfriend at the time, now wife, told me certain things. She needed certain things. There was a time early in our relationship where it was even more dysfunctional than it was a little bit later, 
where we it had it had to work no matter what. And we're coming from this approach where the beginning of our relationship started with so much intensity that I think we both had a lot of hope for it. That even though there was was only intensity, but there was something we felt a very strong connection. I don't want to make it sound like it was just infatuation. There was a very strong soul connection when my wife and I met each other very early on. And then a lot of the dysfunction started setting in, especially with my own um, addiction and avoiding conversations and numbing myself. And then the shame from it. And then the more the shame escalated, the only thing I knew how to do to deal with the shame was to act out even more and on and on. But for the first year and a half of our dance, there was this idea that this must work. And we have to figure out some way, even early recovery, that this must work. And the only way we can define success is if I go into this process and she goes into her process and at the end of it, we're together. And we stayed in that dance for a while. And at a certain point, like my sponsor said, is to enter that space of unpredictability and say, what is what is going to happen if we say, these are my terms and conditions? Maybe I will, maybe I won't. I have a line that I won't cross. And then it, it brought the relationship to a space that we're both willing to lose it. And if we're both willing to lose it, we have it. It's making me think of someone who I met recently. He heard me talk, and I don't think he was there. I think he was there to support his brother, who was an addict. And he came to me afterwards, and he said that he's struggling with cheating on his own wife and what he should do. I said, well, you definitely need to tell her. He said, do you think I should tell her now? I said, no, I'm not. I'm not in that place. I don't know her. I don't know you, whether you should walk over to her right now and tell her. But I know that at some point in time, in order to be in a relationship with someone, that truth has to come out. Even if the behavior stops, the truth at some point has to come out. That's what I've seen in my own life. What I've seen with others is how can I call myself, call this a relationship if I have the secret that I don't want the person to know? It doesn't make any sense. And his, his response to me was, well, if she finds out, maybe I'll lose it. If she finds out about this, maybe I'll lose the relationship. And I think that that's, that's exactly it. Maybe we'll lose something. When we're willing to lose something, maybe we have it. We don't have it if we're, if we're holding on to it so dearly, we have nothing. But if he walks into someone and honestly brings up the truth, and then she chooses that she wants to work through it with him, then they have a relationship because everything is there. But if he's holding on to it at all costs, it doesn't sound like much of a relationship. It just sounds like control. So I think getting into that space of do I stay or do I go, oftentimes the question itself is the answer. Do I stay or do I go? I can ask that question for my whole life and then it'll end. Do I stay or do I go? The answer depends. Let me start with a certain set of things that I'm going to do, a certain set of conditions that I'm going to say these are my bottom line. And then depending, that decision is almost not made by the person asking the question. My wife didn't decide whether or not we're together when she said these are my bottom line for whether or not we stay. And it wasn't whether I, I, I crossed the line. That wasn't where she put it. She wanted to know for herself, A, that I'm working on it, and B, that if something comes up, I tell her about it. Those were the two things. So if at any point in time I violated one of those, then she wasn't the one who stayed or gone. I was the one who made the decision. I pushed the button. All she did was lay out what her bottom line behaviors were for her and willing to step into that space of uncertainty of unpredictability, I think, is what allowed our relationship to make it this far, and hopefully it continues. There's something I would like to also address with the should I stay or should I go. It's so individualized. And I looked at the 12-step program as such a gift because I don't use it only with the addiction. I use it when um, we lost all our money. 
my husband and I have been in a terrible financial uh, situation. So how am I going to, the problem is, is am I going to lose my sobriety in my emotional state of being, or I'm going to go and act out by not necessarily going to sex or drugs. I could act out by being mean to my husband or he mean, mean to me. Yeah. So really, 12-step is such a great gift that you could apply to anything. Uh, uh, the unmanageability is not necessarily when I'm not getting my drug of choice. The unmanageability is that when my life doesn't go according to me and to Rabbi Simmons, if my husband would have not changed, this is not, we're not here to do 12-step to change the outcome. We're doing 12-step to change us. To change our attitude about now, life. Now they say you call, you go in because of the addict. You stay for you. Exactly. Yeah. So to to ask the question, it, it's a it's it's I I'm seeing the benefit of this more about not only about my marriage. I see the benefit of it of how it's it evolved to, to for me to become a better person and and living life and thriving with life rather than surviving life and. And the action is to take is to take the twelve steps. That's the action. Right, uh, Miriam. I want the, the, the question ahead. I had was really not to you directly. It was really more. Let's say you do find yourself and you become stronger and you're able to make the ultimatums and not be trapped under someone else's control and so on. Is there a scenario that that strength can spill over even if your partner is not doing what they need to do? That was uh, just rephrasing. The scenario that it will spill over, spill over to my spouse, you say? Yeah. Of course. In in Yiddish, in Judaism, one plus one equal one. Okay. And, and, and when you're in the frequency of health, you're attracting health. I mean, a sidebar. Somebody who ate bat in, in China changed the whole world in Africa because of one little micro virus that that was created by that i mean we all connected in new york too not just africa yeah <laughs> in new york not just miami yeah. isn't it the yeah. same place yeah be <laughs> um miriam i don't know if you saw a question that came in in the q a where someone was talking about i don't i want to address it but i don't feel qualified to talk about it as the the shame someone felt from being used sexually by a sex addict. Someone is saying like this, hi, I'm listening to Miriam's story. I'm amazed at her strength. I feel so connected. And she goes on to tell her story about her um, her ex-husband who had many affairs before marriage and he was considered a top student. But I, then she says like this, she says, I feel a big deal about getting divorced was not about the affairs or, or the porn, but the, the pain she's speaking about. She says, but I personally was being used every night have sex four times a night in all positions because he needed it. It was about me being used, my body being used. And I wonder if Miriam can touch upon if she recognized that in the bedroom, there were problems as well. And I think, um, Miriam, just to, to touch a little bit on it, I think what happens is someone like myself who started watching porn at a very young age, right? And I, I would, you know, one of the things I say is that as a teenager, I had to jump through hurdles to look at porn. Today, a kid has to jump through hurdles not to look at porn. I'm talking about mid-90s, late-90s, right? I was 11, 12, 13 years old. And yeah, you can get dial-up internet, but there was maybe one computer in a home and there certainly weren't smartphones, laptops. 
all of these very easily accessible ways of, of accessing pornography. And still I managed to. And this becomes our sex education. And uh, I've heard one people, a person, I'll be a little bit graphic because I think it's, it's necessary for this conversation, said that pornography is hands-off sex. Right? What it means is in order to get the, the shots that they want to get, that they have to show sex in a way that it's not real. It's not real. The hands block the view. So oh, everything that they're trying to do is show a very objectified, a very dehumanizing, a very almost abusive form of sex. And that becomes a sex education that someone like myself who's watched a lot of porn, that's what we got. That's our definition of sex. And then eventually, when you get a, a person into a room, it's not, it, it doesn't start off with emotions and affection and hugs and kisses. It goes to a very potentially dark place of objectifying the, the other person. And someone, a woman on the other end of experiencing that is asking the question, what about that shame? What about the shame of dealing with being the person who is used and objectified by the addict. And that's so what's, what what's your question, Nelly? I think her question, if I understood correctly, is is what to do with that. If she if she wants you to touch on it, I think to What to, to do what? It. She's no longer with the husband. So what to do with that? With what? How to get beyond that shame, I would just say. Yeah. She said, she's like this. However, I still have I the shame trying, and guilt. Let me, let, me read, let me put in her words. I still have the shame and guilt that my body was used, that I had a lack of judgment in my ex, and I got married to him, that I was lied to constantly, and most of all, the guilt for getting divorced. So, you know, Stephanie spoke about that, touched on this a little bit earlier, but questioning our own judgment and having confidence in ourselves. And she's looking, and she's a person who made these decisions, and there's guilt around all of that. So I think that it's important, you know, Dabba Chaim, your husband sent me a message earlier, talk about the collateral damage. I didn't quite know what he meant, but I think this is what he wants to talk about also, that it, it spills over into so many different areas. It's not just the porn that watch. It's not just the affairs, but even in the intimacy, it destroys the intimacy itself. Those moments are destroyed by someone who's used to objectifying and who's learned sex from pornography, unfortunately. Okay, so, so okay. I'll start with this. And I'll go for micro, and then we'll go to micro, okay? Macro is that unfortunately our, our color teachers are not teaching us how to set boundaries in the bedrooms because they say your husband has a need, you have to be to to to, to give it. But there are three things that he she, he cannot do, and nobody knows this. He cannot wake her up. He cannot wake her up if she's asleep to need sex. That's a boundary. Second boundary, he cannot come to her and ask for sex if he's drunk. That's another boundary. Third, need mephias her. What is mephias her? What is it that he needs to console her? Which means he needs to speak with her. That's a third boundary. So if we, we stay focused on this and tell it to our daughters before they get married, huge advancement. Now, what do you do when you do give it to him and you feel objectified and all that? Honey, you didn't know, you, you did not know better. You are you were you wanted to love him. You wanted to create love. And it says in, in, in our Essanon material when we read them, we confuse love with uh, sex with love. We did not know better. So we need to learn what love is. And love is first start with loving yourself. Set the boundaries about yourself. Now what happened unfortunately had to happen because Unfortunately, through what happened, you're learning about yourself and your physicality. 
you're learning about what you want. And you do have a voice in the bedroom to say what you want, what works for you better. Set your boundaries. We never mentioned in this whole two hours, unfortunately, that there is couple recovery of anonymous. And couple recovery of anonymous did tremendous work for me and my husband. And I highly, highly recommend it to couples who are start working with their with their addiction at home and go as a couple to recover because otherwise it's like two boats sailing in night separate not coming together i feel terrible for you my sweetheart that your husband used you and objectify you and it will take time for you to recover recover your body recover yourself Know that just like Rabbi Simon Jacobson says, you're pure, you're beautiful. You try to keep the home together. You did the best you can and it cost you. It was a misery nefesh for you. It was a, a sacrificing yourself for this. And I, I applaud you for the courage that you put up yourself in order to do keep your home together. But then you, 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 well, waking up and you realize that you're a special person and you nobody, no woman should go through such a thing. And I'm sending you all my love with the frequency of, I hope you will recover soon and you will call us and tell us that you're remarried and your marriage is harmonious and, is, and beautiful. I wanted to just talk on, on, on this a little bit personally, um, which is why I've been sharing this whole time, but you know, we were talking about feeling worthless and worthy and how like where we are in all of this. And I know that in my marriage that I felt that and I convinced myself that if I did whatever it is that he needed, he'd stop using drugs, you know, and I again, that was a cycle that I was on and I lost track of halacha and I lost track of the beauty of Taras Mishbacha. I also was wasn't educated well, honestly, before I was, you know, a little schnook getting married. Um, but the addiction took over that part of our life. The, 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 you know, there was that toxic fuel that was in our home that was in our marriage. So it didn't really exist. And only after I started going to Al-Anon and only after I started healing on that end, did I go back to Kala classes again? I, you know, I was starting a new marriage, so to speak in ways, because I was becoming a new person. So I needed to learn a whole nother, you know, I needed to hear all these things again from a new, like I said, that perspective, that vision, that new reshaping of everything that I was, that I was becoming. And God willing, when when I get remarried, whenever that will be on God's timing, I'll go for Kala classes again, because the the, the purity of that home, of, of that mitzvah that I have, that I'm responsible for, it, it was like a whole new experience for me. But it was only once I started the healing, you know, through Al-Anon that I even realized that I was using, I was doing everything that I could just to please the addiction. I was enabling it. I was feeding it more and more. And it took time. Again, like, like none of this is black and white and none of this happens overnight. This has been a process and it's been a continuous process in life. That's not a sprint. It's a marathon. One last thing, you know, with the shame, you know, connected to divorce, connected to addiction, I remember when Mati died, I asked the family, I said, I don't know what you have planned, but Mati didn't die from a brain aneurysm. Mati was very open about his addiction and I was open about Al-Anon. 
at that time. There was no secrets. At his funeral, whoever got up and spoke did talk about his drug addiction, about what he what he struggled with. He wasn't a drug addict. He was a he was a, an amazing individual with great qualities and and God given talents who had challenges, who had a sickness. So it didn't define everything about him. Mati and I were not we we didn't hide, we didn't lie, and we didn't. And there is, there's a lot of shame that is connected to it. Um, and, you know, fears and shame and all these emotions, if they're kept hidden, they just grow more of them. They don't just disappear if you ignore the problem. They'll just continue to manifest and grow. And that's, you know, with with talking about these topics and all these different organizations that are speaking up about addiction and, you know, the and, and the collateral damage. It's so important because there's so many, unfortunately, you know, men and women and teenagers and children that are so exposed that there needs to be more talk about it. There needs to be this this realization that it exists, that acceptance that it exists and that there is something you could do about it. There are choices you can make in your life, which is the whole topic of my mic drop and the whole purpose of my life. You know, even with my center of my soul, it's a choice that I made in my life. Can you sum that up for me again in terms of the, the whole purpose of your life in one sentence? Of the choices that I've made, of the actions that I'm making every day, of the willingness to do them and to and to prey on them. You know, and that I'm also not a, I'm not, I'm, I might be a single mother and I might have all these things, but it doesn't define who I am. I still have a support system. I still have people in my life that I've, I've brought them into my life because you can't go through it alone. You know, even when it, we were talking, you know, I, I know both Rabbi Jacobson, I think everyone mentioned, you know, about having a, that third person there, even in your marriage, you know, just having that other person there. I'm not alone in any of this. You're not alone in any of this. Anyone who's listening to, to, to this webinar, you know, each one of us who are here speaking and sharing is reassuring that we're here for you and there are other people who are here for you. And it takes a lot of courage to sign up to the webinar and it takes a lot of courage to speak up. And not everybody's meant to speak up, you know, with a megaphone, but just speaking up and sharing, it gives that release. It gives that healing, that honesty that you're willing to have with yourself to go through the process and to go through the healing and the change. And those are all choices that a person makes in their life. Thank you, Stephanie. I'd like to uh, take this opportunity to share some final thoughts, go around final thoughts to someone who's dealing with this, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap this up. So Miriam, if you want to go first, and Stephanie, Rabbi Jacobson. Well, first of all, I want to thank you, Ellie, for putting this together. In 2007, I did not think that this is going to happen ever to me. And to be in a panel of uh, the distinguished rabbi, Rabbi Simon Jacobson, and of course, Stephanie, you're amazing. I'm honored. I'm honored that our, our souls are connected here for this purpose and, and to, God willing, bring a correction in, in, to, to the world. And most importantly, to bring more of God's light into anybody's home that they, is suffering from the addiction. In a few words, total gratitude about what happened and a total curiosity what will happen and how more and more will things will morph and, and reveal to me. Because like Rabbi Simon Jacobson says, uh, from the concealment, under the concealment, uh, I want to, I'm, I'm anxious to see 
what is going to be revealed. And um, stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned. Thank you. Stephanie, some final thoughts? Thank you, Maria. And thank you for this platform. I've gained so much from everyone who's shared. With the book, The Choice by Dr. Edith Ager came out last year, and it has, she's my real life hero. I say Esther Hamalka from Miguel Esther from the Perm Story is my, you know, Tanakh hero, my biblical hero, but Dr. Edith Ager is my, uh, my, my real life hero. She's a Holocaust and survivor, right? She's a Holocaust survivor. It's a transformative book to read. The book is called The Choice. And she talks about victimhood and she talks about, you know, what route you could take or what route she could have taken. Um, and she goes into details and it's unbelievable. And she talks about how she uses her experience to uh, of becoming through Dr. Victor Frankel and being, a, you know, a student of, you know, of Dr. Victor Frankel. Um, she uses her experience to not only become a doctor herself to heal others, but she finds healing along the way. So this whole experience for me over the last eight years and to this webinar at this exact moment has brought another level of healing. The mic drop, doing the mic drop brought a, an unbelievable level of healing that I didn't know it, what was there, you know, what would still need to be touched on, you know, through, you know, 12 steps, through therapy after Mati died. But, you know, she talks about Dr. Victor Frankel, and there's one quote that is just, you know, sticking to me more and more. And this is also part of who I am and what I thrive, you know, every day for. And the quote is, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In this space lies our choice, and in our choice lies our growth and our freedom. It's a yeah. lot. It's heavy. It's, it's, it's deep. But really, when you think about it, when it comes to you're you're stuck with something there in front of you, you know, you have a choice to respond and how you're going to respond is, you know, how you're going to choose that response can make all the difference in life. And just because you make a certain response doesn't mean you have to keep making that one over and over again, that carousel of insanity that I talk about. You can make changes in your life. And in those changes, in that choice, your growth and your freedom are there. There's so much that is that is something that has been so, you know, and I read it and, and I reread it and I, I have it all over in my mind. It's just it's it's embedded in my heart now it's just in, in my actions. And another one that I say all the time is by Maya Angelou. When you know better, you do better. When you hear these stories, when you hear when you hear the experiences of others and something's triggering you, it's triggering you for a reason. Rabbi Jacobson said, there's some people on here that took courage just to show up to this webinar. When you know better, you do better. And those actions, if one action is going to lead to another action, like I say, like one choice led to another choice in my mic drop. And then you realize that you, when you look back and every year on Mati's yurt side, I look back and I reflect on like I do on my birthday. Also, I look back and I reflect of like, how did I get here? And there's something there, there's there's something tangible, even though it's not like, you know, a pen, but there's something emotionally, mentally, spiritually tangible that exists in my life now that didn't for a long time. So those are my final uh, thoughts. Thank you, Stephanie. Beautiful. Thank you for joining today. And thank you for your courage to share your story and to share it again and to thank you. Uh, take us on the journey with it as it's growing and progressing. And the question I asked 
earlier about the happy ending. I'm glad I did because your answer was was spot on. You're on that road and you're on that journey with us. And I think that it's often in some ways more challenging to, I did not do that. I shared, I've always shared when I felt like I got to a place of some clarity, of some outward resolution. You know, I had a few years ago where I went through a very, very difficult period in business and losing a lot of money. And during it, I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't talk about it to anyone. Anyone. I was existentially embarrassed. It was crushing for me, crushing for my identity. And as I've seen seen that period pass and now it's somewhat in the rearview mirror, it's easier for me to talk about it. So I commend your willingness to to take us on the journey while it's going on, both in the mic drop and again today and the other work that you're doing. Rabbi Simon, you want to take us out? I literally sitting here in somewhat uh, tears, and not to the pain, actually. I just am so taken when I see uh, people bearing their souls, you know, this uh, genuine and sincere journey. It just teaches us what the real, I mentioned the word dignity a few times, the dignity of your journeys. So I, number one, I'm totally humbled and honored. Miriam, Stephanie, Ellie, to be here with you and all those that are listening. Two things that I want to share briefly that come to mind in a way that maybe sums it up. A number of years ago, it just, it just came to mind as, we, as I was listening. A number of years ago, I was counseling a couple that were in the throes, yeah, very difficult. One of them was, the, in this case, the man was the addict and his spouse, and they were dealing with the horrible stuff, lies, deception. I mean, it was uh, probably the worst case scenario because none of them were willing to judge. He was not willing to budge. He was the, he was still lying, but she convinced him, I guess it was an ultimatum that at least come speak with me. They both did respect me because they had known me for, for a number of years. And it didn't take long for me to realize that she was trapped and psychologically basically hypnotized by the fact he was very manipulative, very narcissistic, and he convinced her she has no other options. He was her only option, and things are just going to stay this way, and she just has to accept it. And he had all these, he was excellent, gift of gab, the charm, he was able to turn it on and all of that. And I recognize that. And I recognize she wasn't ready to hear uh, another perspective. She was that just desperate. But I remember this. I, I dug deep into my own heart and soul, and I said to her and him, I said, you know, God created every human being with enormous potential and a and tremendous amount of beauty. I ask you both, do you think you're living up to the most beautiful parts that you're capable of? The things you always dreamt about when you were young. And I just wanted to rattle, actually, her especially, him too, but especially her, just to wake up something of a dream that she may have once had that she gave up on. Because she capably gave up on her possibilities. And I have to tell you, it didn't happen overnight. Plenty more problems. It got worse before it got better. But she called me about a year ago, and she told me, i never forget what you said because it left me. I was haunted. I couldn't sleep nights. Am I living up to the most beautiful part of me? And I realized I gave up completely. I don't even know what beautiful meant anymore. My story, my narrative was my husband's narrative. It wasn't mine. I was just there as a prop to satisfy, and I was just in that survival, mo survival mode um, uh, Stephanie put it well, martyrdom, the martyr, the Jewish mother, the, the children, the wife, etc. 
I said, I have to thank you because I didn't hear you completely, but it planted a seed. And I want to say this to each one of us. You have tremendous beauty inside of you. You were born with it. I remember I once heard a line. You were born an original. Don't become a copy. You were born beautiful. Don't become contaminated by other people's narratives and stories. And finally, I will say Michelangelo, the great sculptor, once was asked, how do you carve those beautiful angels in the marble? Listen to this answer. Unbelievable answer. He said, I see the angel trapped in the marble, and I carved and carved and set her free. In other words, the beauty is there. The angel is there. You are that beauty. You are that angel. You are that music. You are that flower. And unfortunately, life sometimes we get trapped in marble or in concrete or in other substances. But the beauty is there for you to release it. You're a bird that can soar as high as you want to soar. And follow some of the beautiful suggestions here, powerful suggestions, but there's the choices we make. I personally believe that being here is divine providence. There's something said, we don't know who said it and what, when it was said and how it was said, that can spark that beauty and go on that glorious journey. Sometimes it goes through difficult patches and difficult legs of the journey, but it's a tremendous journey. And it's an honor to be part of this. This is where reality really meets mankind, where we're honest. Sometimes, as I always put it, I say the honest, the ugly honesty is better than a false truth. And then you really reach places that are unprecedented. And God bless everyone. With the strength of God and the strength of the spirit that God gave us, we can achieve the impossible even. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Amen. Jacobson. Thank you for your courage to uh, join these types of conversations and share and share your wisdom uh, with us. You know, when I think about uh, the common denominator between the, the guests I, and the messages, I hear two, there are two words that stick out. One is gentle and one is courage, right? The courage to have these kind of conversations and to take on these topics. And then the other is this, it was a unifying theme of gentleness. I think that was beautiful through everyone, through the panelists today, where you know, someone, someone in recovery heard him say that healing is meant to be worn like a, a loose garment, not like a straitjacket. Those messages, and we'll always hear it, someone who's done a lot of work on themselves, and especially in recovery, it starts taking on a much more gentle tone. Those languages of being, we have to be hard on ourselves in order to get the results we want, that intensity almost always backfires. And while it sometimes works for a short period of time to get those short-term results, those with the staying power, I always notice that, you know, you look at the old timers in recovery, the people who are sporting 20, 30 years and who are not just sporting years of abstinence, but of emotional sobriety, there's a gentleness to their approach. And in talking about collateral damage, I was nervous because I was nervous that in trying to highlight the pain that addicts cause others, we could also lump guilt and shame on the addicts themselves for the collateral damage that they caused. Right? It's not only what they do to themselves and not only the, the shame they often have and the beliefs they have about the, themselves. So I was nervous how to navigate that how to, because my, I feel like my role and my mission is to reduce shame. Reduce shame so that people could ask that question, that first question for help. And today, today's webinar was not about practical solutions necessarily that someone can take. It's more about that first step, that first step of reaching out to someone a friend and having a conversation, the first step of going to a meeting, the first step of 
asking for help. The first step is maybe even not talking to someone, just writing it in a journal and putting the words on paper for the first time and saying, this is what's going on. And I saw one question that came in or one statement that came in that really moved me today. And I felt like that this, this panel was worthwhile just for, um, just for that. Someone said, I realized that I've been in uh, like holding on to something for the last seven years, my relationship and just that realization. And maybe that person is not ready yet to ask for help, but putting those words out there in the universe becomes that, that first step of it. And I'm, I'm grateful for the, uh, for the others in the panel, the gentle, the, the gentleness and the courage, this conversation. I feel a little bit more full from it. This was a spiritual ritual for me. Thank you, everyone. Well, there you have it. Episode two in the books, Collateral Damage. Thank you so much for tuning into this conversation. It was really one of the most meaningful conversations I've recorded so far. And uh, I hope that you found it meaningful and rewarding as well. I know it's an investment of time to listen to these conversations, and I thank you for trusting me with your time. If you found it meaningful, please share it with others. Please rate, subscribe, whatever it is people do that help these podcasts get to more people and a broader reach. And I look forward to the next episode of the In Search For More podcast. Thanks so much.